0: as you were
1: in the title race as Manchester City put in a professional performance to Dispatch Wolves on Monday night and right here on the Blue Moon Podcast we'll be discussing the key talking points from that game and from the bigger picture as Pep Guardiola sets his sights on closing the four point gap to league leaders Liverpool also on today's show we'll be looking at the City career of David Silva after he became the player with the most Premier League appearances for the club can you believe he's been at the Etihad for nearly nine years? How time flies when you're having fun. With games against Huddersfield and Burton Albion to look ahead to, and also Howard Hawking to check in with, we better get cracking. I'm your host, Sam Roscoe, and I'm joined by City fan and blogger Richard Burns. Hello. And from the Press Association, Andy Hampson. Hello. Fellas, it's lovely to have you on the Blue Moon Podcast. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and first of all, let's uh, get straight into it with the title race. Great response with the performance against Wolves after the disappointment of of Liverpool grinding out a one nil win. First of all, Liverpool grinding out a one nil win. Any concerns for you about that?
2: Well, yeah, I mean we know the position now. If Liverpool keep doing that, we can't win the league. But Liverpool aren't going to win every game yet this se- every game they've got left this season. So um, unfortunately, City probably aren't either. But all we can do now is make sure that we stay consistent, that we don't have the stupid defeats like the Palace and Leicester one where um, you know, back-to-back defeats like that are so on city now. Uh, we've got to avoid that and all we can do is, is stay as close to Liverpool as possible and, and wait for them to drop points and if they don't do it then you just have to hold your hands up and say fair play because it takes a hell of a team to beat this City team to a title um, but at the moment, four points is not insurmountable you don't want it to get any bigger than that uh, but no, we're very much still in it. Very much still in it. But it is—I mean, I can't say it's not a little bit um, a bit disconcerting when Liverpool just keep racking up wins. It's you know we're so close, and yet they're still ahead of us. We're so so good, and at the moment this season, what you have to say is they've been a little bit better. Um, but we're there, and it's it's far from done yet. City are
1: used to being the the leaders in this title race over you know the past few years. They've always been the ones leading the pack. The boots on the other foot now. They're the chaser when it comes to the leaders playing a match, putting the pressure on City. They've kind of responded quite well, and that that performance against Wolves was,
3: um, you know, evidence of that, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, say, I, I, I think it may be a new situation for for Pep as well to be to be chasing it, trying to chase a team down. Obviously, City you know, back in 2012 did it um, very famously mm. um, towards the, the end of the season. Uh, but, yeah, City, City dealt with um, that very well against Wolves. It was a very competent performance. Yeah, they were never in any, any danger, really. never really had to get out of second gear. I mean, I was, I was surprised Wolves, ha- how poor they were, although they, they did have to play 70 minutes with 10 men. But, you know, 2-0 at half-time with a man down, you know, it was obvious there was no way they were going to get back into that game. It was a very professional job uh, well done. And I, expect, I expect them to go to Huddersfield at, at the weekend and, and produce something similar. Liverpool go first again this weekend so the situation's going to be the same but yeah I, I don't think city um, should be in any danger this weekend I think yeah I think they're they're very well you know, mentally switched on
1: you mentioned the uh, the red card there one of the major talking points of the match we'll be coming on to that shortly first of all I want to mention Gabriel Jesus two more goals to his tally he's running into some form now isn't he richard
2: yeah um the first goal was the Jesus that I'm sure we remember from when he was starting out with City a couple of years ago when everything, um, I mean it's unfair to say that everything just fell to him in the box. He was getting himself in position and um, doing what he needed to do as a striker. But it did seem that he couldn't he, he couldn't stay away. It was like a magnet to him in the box. And that was what it was like again on a, against Wolves. Um, the second one was a very, very confident penalty. You think of... Like the first penalty that he took against Shakhtar um, in the 6-0 win when he got a hat-trick. okay, yeah, he got a hat-trick, but two of them were penalties, and the first one he slipped on his backside as he was taking it. It wasn't exactly uh, the sign of a confident striker, as daft as that sounds to say, of a guy scoring three goals in a game. Um, But against Wolves, he does. He looks like he's got a bit of that confidence back. And I thought it was a big call, but a good call from Pep to play him. Um, because after his four goals against um, against Burton, OK, it's only Burton, but if you're a striker and you get taken out after that, even if the guy that you've been taken out for is Sergio Aguero, that must be disconsoling, um, and it would be a sort of, what else can I do? Um, but it's not easy to leave Aguero on the bench and he, he must have been chomping at the bit to get on. So it was a big call from Pep, but it was the right one and it'll do Jesus the world of good.
1: When he did make that change in that game against Wolves, Jesus looked quite disappointed to, to come off, but you can understand it, can't you, from, from both sides
3: really, how he, he was disappointed and, uh, you know, Bringing him off, if you like. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, as uh, Richard just saying, you know, his, his confidence must have been soaring. You know, seven goals in, in three games. He's doubled his tally for the season in the, in the last week. Um, I mean, he, he he has come good. I mean, it's, it's been it's taken time this season. He's clearly come back from the, the World Cup um, a little low on confidence. Um, you know, he's had a few injury problems in the past as well. And, and when you when you're injured, you lose your match fitness. And obviously, the the, the demands of the fitness in the, in the Premier League are so high, and that the demands. And fitness that Pep probably puts on you higher than, than most teams in the Premier League and and when you when you're not f- fully firing obviously your, your confidence is going to suffer and I think with with Jesus we saw his, his finishing suffer as well um, but it looks like that's that's been coming back that this run of games has, has been good for him so yeah absolutely you can see why he's, he's disappointed why he comes off I me mean, because at the end of the day he's a he's a footballer and he, he wants to play football and you're gonna be you're gonna be disappointed when you you come off but you know, Pep's gotta do what he's what he's gotta do for the, the good of the team and, and you know Aguero's missed a couple of games with flu. He you know, he needs to get him back into the swing of things really. Um whenever you seen Aguero have a bit of time out, it does take him a couple of games to get back up to, to full speed. So I think that was yeah, the right the right shout by Pep.
1: One thing that was particularly pleasing I thought was that he was in the wars as well quite a bit, wasn't he, Richard? But despite that he um he did seem quite durable, didn't he?
2: Um yeah, he did. He's you know, that the um the head injury that I think it was that he took in the, the first half like I remember like watching
1: a, a replay back like on, on Twitter pretty much instantly and going,
2: Oh Yeah, it was down it gotta work. It was down in front of me, um and it was it didn't look good. It didn't look great at the time. Well, I mean I think the indicator of that is when the ball's in the mm. box and two opposition defenders sat suddenly calling over for um, over for the physio and, and, and sort of take their eye off the ball for that. It's a pretty big indicator that that's a potentially serious injury. So, yeah, for him to get up and keep throwing himself about and getting himself in there is a, a bit of credit to him, really.
1: On the red card, Wolves fans seem to have some complaints, but... <laughs> There can't be that many complaints,
3: can there, about it? I, I don't think so. No, it looked like a, a pretty bad tackle to me. And Nuno Espirito Santo stood right near it. And he said in, in his press conference afterwards, he said, "It's you know, I've no complaints. <laughs> it's a red mm. card. I mean, we've seen Fabian Delph get sent off recently for a similar sort of challenge. I, I think it was the, the right decision. I can't see why they did complain, really. It was a reckless lunge.
1: Penalty shout, um another one, really, with, with very little room to debate. But... Nice to see Raheem Sterling actually, you know, winning a penalty <laughs> as opposed to just going down being fouled in the box and the referee not giving anything.
3: Yeah, oh, oh well he did get a penalty of course when he fell over, <laughs> yeah. of course. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Let's not forget that. Yeah, well it was a yeah, it was
3: a cor- correct decision, yeah.
1: Do you feel like, you know, City get um disproportionately low numbers of penalties, you know, when you consider the amount of possession that they have and, and the amount of time that they spend in in an opposition's box? Do you feel like, you know, maybe Pep Guardiola should be saying, listen, we've got the ball in the box so quite a lot of the time, let's see if we can get something in there?
2: Well, no, absolutely not. I would never encourage that. I mean, I've softened a lot. Is
1: that lo- too Bielsa for you? <laughs> well,
2: that's what, I, what a slight Bielsa that is. He might be a spy, but he's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing that says that he tells his players to go down. Um no, listen, I'm softer on the idea now that if you get a kick in the box and you get fouled, you know, ref don't give them if you don't go down, so I accept that players have, have got to let the ref know. Um, but, nah, I don't know, because when you say how much time City spend in the box, my first thought on that, and I might be way out here, but for a team that have so much possession in the last third, do you think City do spend that much time in the box? Because quite a lot of the time it's get the ball in from, from the byline... And you're picking out Jesus, Sterling, Sané, David Silva, Aguero in it's, the box.
1: It certainly feels like they have a lot of these one-two moments where maybe they could protect the ball a little bit better in in the opposition's area, I feel.
2: Maybe, but OK, I suppose what I'm thinking is you don't tend to get one player holding the ball in the box for a long time, so it reduces the time that maybe they're going to get fouled. If it's one touch in the box and a player's releasing the ball almost as soon as they've got it, whether that be for a pass or a shot, I think... That minimises your chances of drawing a foul. I mean, obviously players like Sterling and Sané, they are tricky with the feet um, and do try and beat a man. But no, I don't. I don't think we're particularly underrepresented in in that regard. And I imagine this is just one of those things of perspective. When we were a lower down team, it always used to felt like we got a disproportionate amount of decisions go against us, or disproportionately low penalties, and that the big teams always get penalties. The reality is, the more you attack, the more chance you've got of getting them. And I'd imagine. You ask a Burnley fan whether we get disproportionately low penalties, and they probably won't have a, a nice thing to say to you about it. So, um, looking at Kevin De
1: Bruyne, nice to see him back on the pitch. Uh, he was brought on, and it, it looked as though he was told just to to be a quarterback and you know deliver those dangerous balls from deep. But that's where he's best, isn't he?
3: Yeah, I can't disagree with that. He, yeah, it is good to see him back. He, he's had a you know, tough time this season. It's not not really gone well for him. He's he's had a long injury at the start of the season. He's he's come back and then he's got injured again and then he's had another little spell out recently. Apparently, he wasn't too happy when he he was substituted against Burton last week. Um, yeah, absolutely, you know, understandably so. All this time out, he, you know, he wants to be playing. But you know, as we were saying about Jesus, Pep's got to make the decisions for the, the good of the team. And you know, he, he's such an important player. It's really not worth not worth the risk of keeping him on against, against Burton. Um but yeah it's good to see him coming back to fitness. Um City are probably going to need him in the, in the second half of the season because of the, the pressure's going to be really on. It looks like it's going to be a, a thrilling title race. Liverpool don't look like they're they're going to drop many points. So yeah City need him firing and yeah l- looking as good as he did uh, against Rotherham, and Burton. Yeah. You know obviously it's going to be a step up in mm. the weeks to come but yeah Good good news for City.
1: How important do you think he'll be, Richard, in the second half of the season?
2: Huge. I mean, the upside to his injury, um, and, you know, might be stretching the point to call it that, but certainly something in City's favour is getting him back to match fitness and the idea of a fully fresh De Bruyne at Touchwood heading into February and March and leading the charge... um, that's huge. That's a really, really big thing to have in your favour. We don't want him to be. I th- I we don't think... want him to be a player that we rely on because mm. he's back and everybody thinks, "Oh, De Bruyne is back. This is a this is a lift." We don't want him to be the oh, suddenly the only outlet that we get and fall into I the think trap. For
1: of... me, it's just a different option, isn't it? You know what I mean? When you well, you have an opposition your... that's so focused on keeping players out wide, not letting crosses into the box, then all of a sudden you've you know got this massive ball going through the middle or this massive switch of play that's coming from Kevin De Bruyne. it can for a for a defender in an opposition when you are solely focused on making sure you you're stopping Mares, you're stopping oh. Sterling, then all of a sudden you've got to deal with this
2: Listen, this com- incredible ball. Completely agree, but I just think it does seem to be a pattern that we're getting in to sling the ball in from deep and out wide. And that's great as long as you're mixing it up because we've got so many other ways to hurt teams that you've got to use that variety. And it seems to me that the two games where we've come unstuck recently um, are games where we've fallen into the trap of being a little bit one-dimensional.
1: Nice to see Edison get a bit of a cameo as well against Wolves, (laughs) although
3: Guardiola didn't seem overly happy that he uh, came out to play. At the end, <laughs> no but it just shows just shows what um you know what a quality ball player he is um Nigel Clough actually before the Burton game was saying if if um if Edison was in his squad he'd play him in midfield um <laughs> he, he he does look a he does look a, a good player doesn't he uh, I, I, not knowing much about his history, but I imagine he he probably played outfield as a as a child and then he's he's ended up finding his his home in the in the goal, but yeah, he he did come out. It, it was it was funny to see, but he looked totally composed. Carl mm. I mean, Walker was asked about it after the game, and he and he and uh, you know he, he laughed about it. He said, "We, we don't want to be disrespectful to, to other teams, so we've got to be careful, you know, with him not to to cross the line." But you know, it, it is very uh, comforting to know you've you've got a goalkeeper who's so so confident, uh, effective the as well ball
1: his feet. Yeah, effective as well. Surely, I mean, you know, it is essentially having a. An extra man in that defence, isn't it? The role he plays.
3: Well, I think, and the, the confidence he's brought to the the, the rest of the defence since he arrived it has been incredible, really. Um, I mean, obviously, Claudio Bravo was brought in to, to do a similar job, and it when it didn't work. I mean, he, he's clearly a, a step above Bravo because he can do all of the basics of, a, of goalkeeping as well. But yeah, I, I think it it does look good when, when you see them. Passing it around inside the inside the box, mm. you think, "Oh my goodness, what, what are they doing?" And you know he's he's attempting backheels and Cruyff turns, but he he seems to know what he's doing. He, you know maybe he may get caught out once or twice, but um, I, I don't think it's going to change him. It, yeah, it does it does change the the whole uh, perspective of the the team in a way. It's a, it's a different way of playing, and it's it's new to to English football.
1: I saw a comment on Twitter very similar to the the uh, along the same lines of the the Nigel Clough tweet which was um, Edison will get in Liverpool's midfield and that, that ruffled a few feathers on Merseyside <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, he, is, he is fantastic isn't he, well, I, the thing with Edison right is uh, he's not the best goalkeeper in the league because he's not, there's better shot stoppers than him, there's at least two better shot stoppers than him in the league um, at United and, and Liverpool um, but there is not a team in the league and there there might not be a team in the world that has a better goalkeeper for them because City don't need a great shot stopper most of the time. Um, you know, you think we, we don't concede... I know we do concede chances, but most of the time we've got the ball. Realistically, most chances that teams create aren't going to be clear-cut chances. He does do the basics of goalkeeping well. There's a few that you lets in where you think, could he have done better? But he also doesn't make anywhere. He doesn't make many absolute howlers where you think he's the reason we've conceded a goal. What he does with his feet is exceptional. I mean, let's have it right. Alisson's pretty good too, Um, but Edison is—he's just perfect. He revolutionised the way City played. He's one of the most important signings that Pep's made, Um, and he vindicated. He vindicated Pep's decision to let go of Joao when he did. He was just absolutely. Spot on. Well, there's one player who's barely had a mention in this show so far and a lot of you listening at
1: home will be wondering why. Well, don't worry... We have not forgotten about him. On Monday night, David Silva became Manchester City's most used player in the Premier League. The Spaniard notched up his 267th appearance in the English top flight when Pep Guardiola's side dispatched Wolves by three goals to nil. David Mooney has been hearing from some City fans and podcast contributors to reminisce about Silva's nine years at the Etihad.
4: It took a reported £25 million for City to prize David Silva away
5: from Valencia back in 2010. Seems like the bargain of the century when you consider the contribution he's made to the club over the last nine years. I also remember Gary Cook actually saying on this very podcast a few years ago that when he was negotiating with Silva and Yaya Toure, he kind of played them off against each other by telling them that the other one had already signed for the club when they hadn't yet done so. And um, I think that tells you how much of a highly coveted player Silva was at the time, that he was enough to convince a player of Toure's calibre to join City that summer. Little did I, or probably anyone else, know at the time that we were signing a guy who would uh, go on to become arguably the greatest player ever to play for the club.
4: I that city fan and journalist at one football, Dan Burke.
5: He remembers Silva being a bit of a slow burner when he first arrived. I don't think there was any sort of major concerns about his ability. I think it was just clever management from Mancini more than anything. Um, Roberto Mancini giving a player who had only ever played in Spain up until that point a bit of time to acclimatise to his new surroundings. The early concern was that he'd get knocked around in the Premier League. But City fan and freelance football
4: journalist Will Unwin explains how he adapted.
6: He quickly learned to accept the more physical side of the game in the Premier League and worked on how to make himself more durable in matches. Mancini had him on the wing quite a bit, allowing him to roam where he wanted, which helped, I think, you know, to avoid a bit of that contact early on and to learn where, you know, where the pockets of spaces would be. I used to watch him drop into a lot of those pocket spaces. It was, you know, sort of he'd never seen anything like it at City. Someone who was just willing to wait and knew where the ball would be. Silver's
4: first goal came in a 2-0 win at Red Bull Salzburg in the Europa League, but Dan Burke says it was
5: his second that puts him on the map. I think the watershed moment for Silver in English football came in a 3-2 win over Blackpool in October 2010. Um, that absolutely fantastic goal he scored when he dropped his shoulder a couple of times and curled the ball into the far corner with his left foot. I think if there was any lingering doubts about him at that point, they all evaporated in that moment.
6: Will Unwin adds that it was one of the early signs of a trademark silver move. He always knew the space he needed to work an opening or slide in a pass, and that drop of the shoulder and dummying, his wonderful to see, lovely dribbling, and he always had that end goal to have just about the right amount of space to curl a shot for a corridor into the corner, and, you know, it was a... Fantastic goal and just an individual moment of brilliance. Silver was quickly working his magic in the final third, so much so that his teammates were
4: astounded by some of his vision and passing. Here's Sean Wright-Phillips.
7: When he first came, he would just do
2: stuff
4: in training and in games, and I'd say, I can see that, but I don't think I can do it. And he sees it, and without thinking about it, it was just like a, a magic trick. So I said to
5: him, well, that's why I'm going to call you from that. I'm either going to call you the wizard or Merlin. And he just
4: started laughing at me. It's that ability to perform wonders that has made Silva the backbone of three different title winning city teams, all of which played in three different styles as well. City blogger Richard Burns explains part of the reason why the Spaniard has lasted so long at the Etihad.
2: You look at the strikers that he has played behind Balatelli, Edin Jekyll, Carlos Tevez, Sergio Aguero. There was a great interview with him in around 2012 when he spoke about how he plays differently for whichever striker he's with. So the kind of balls that he would lay on for a striker who likes running onto the ball, compared to how he'd play for a, a striker who likes playing with his back to goal, Silver adjusts his game accordingly.
4: And Richard thinks there's a reason why he's never seemed to slow down with age. He's a magnificent footballer whose
2: game d- it isn't reliant on the things that go with age, so he's never been the fastest player for him, it's his brain. It's his brain that makes him what he is. As long as his body can do what his brain wants it to, then he's going to remain one of the best players in the league. He still is now. If anything, he's got better in recent years.
4: In Silver's eight full seasons at City, he's only finished three without picking up a trophy, and he's got seven major honours to his name in that time too. After the FA Cup in his debut campaign, he was pivotal in Mancini's title win in 2012,
6: Will Owen explains how. When he was on form, City were on form, and with the likes of Aguero and Tevez, the, you know, there was always someone moving to take those passes. He was generally sort of out wide, drifting in with Nasri on the other side. They were both an incredible influence on the team, you know, especially Silver. For someone, supposedly playing out wide, to be the you know the centre point is actually an incredibly impressive feat.
4: Silver was the same in Pellegrini's championship-winning side too. Dan Burke says one game in particular was a highlight.
5: One of the games that always stands out in my mind when I think of Silver was when we won 2-0 away at Hull in the 2013-14 title winning season. If we'd lost that game, it would have been a pretty big blow to our title chances. And Vincent Company got himself sent off early on and we were under the cosh a bit. Um, but then Silver kind of grabbed the game by the scuff of the neck. He scored a brilliant goal from miles out to give us a lead. Which was unusual for him because he, um, he doesn't shoot very much, particularly not from distance. And, I just remember it being one of those matches when he was at the very top of his game and thankfully we've seen quite a lot of those, uh, those games from him over the last nine years.
4: And Richard Burns thinks Silva's performances last season amid difficult personal circumstances when his son Mateo was seriously ill in hospital were unspeakably good. It
2: wasn't just that he was dealing with an emotionally difficult situation, but it was the travelling as well, turning up, having not trained with the team and going on sometimes still being the best player on the pitch. And to just walk into a team that is, in one season, the greatest team to play one single season of Premier League football, and to be able to just walk in and be in tune with your teammates when you've not been around them to put that baggage behind you—I I mean, I—I I don't know how you do it. That's the thing. I don't know how that is possible.
4: Silva has somehow improved under Guardiola as well, even when it didn't seem possible. Will Unwin explained something that's
6: helped him in this incarnation of the team. He's got that freedom to really do what he wants and to take more risks and to push forward for you know more and to you know, make riskier passes almost without repercussions, without that fear. You know, there's a lot you know a lot more fluidity to the team and you know a lot more pace in front of him and he thrives on that.
4: And ever since that first season back in 2010, Silva has
5: been very popular with the fans. Dan Burke says he thinks it's because he's such a classy player. For a player with his diminutive frame to not only have survived in English football but thrived in English football for so long tells you that he's playing the game on a different level to most of his opponents. And the strange thing about Silva is that while he's publicly quite quiet and unassuming I think he's actually quite a big personality in the dressing room. He rarely gives interviews, you rarely see him in the news for the wrong reasons, but behind the scenes he's a proper leader. Dan explains how it's been a complete turnaround for a player who many were worried would be bullied when he first arrived. Nowadays he's really not afraid to stick his foot in and do the dirty work, which only endears him more to the fans, that kind of stuff. He can often be quite dirty, actually, but I think he gets away with it more often than not because it just seems so out of character for him and referees sort of think, oh, can't be David Silva, you know, he wouldn't have done something like that.
4: After nine years and a record number of Premier League appearances, David Silva has cemented himself as one of City's all-time greats. Richard Burns admits it will be hard to see him leave when the time comes. I hope he's there forever.
2: I I genuinely get a little bit sad and a a bit of a lump in the throat when I think, realistically, he's in the twilight of his time at City. It, it really does make me sad to think that he's going to have to go at some point.
4: Monday's match with Wolves wasn't one of Silva's most memorable displays, but it will stand out as the evening where he overtook Joe Hart as the man to have played the most for City in the Premier League. Thinking back to the day he signed in 2010, nobody could have expected he'd have had the impact he has done in the last eight and a half seasons. The good thing for City fans is that he's showing no signs of stopping that form anytime soon.
5: Hello, this is Jason Manford and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast.
0: For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast.
1: A quick look back on David Silver's nine years at the Etihad, hearing from some city fans and podcast contributors there. Some wonderful memories. Any one moment... You know that that stands out for you a, a favourite memory of of David Silver that you have,
2: Richard. Um, the I mean, to be honest, Dan Burke's probably chosen my favourite one in that piece there with Silver's goal at Hull. It was remarkable. It was so on David Silver um, to score from long range. But if David Silver's going to score a long range goal, sort of caressing it in with the inside of his foot from twenty yards, twenty five yards, I think he was. Um, it was beautiful and typical David Silver, it, it dug City out of a hole there because it was a very difficult game again Dan, Dan mentioned it but Vincent Company had been sent off early in that game it was crucial in the title race City had had a terrible week they'd been knocked out of the FA Cup by Wigan out of the Champions League by Barcelona David Silver, unrufflable, bangs in a goal from 25 yards in a, in a really difficult game and, and sets the tone for the game and he was unbelievable that day it might You'd be hard-pushed to find a better performance that he's put in. Uh, but then, obviously, the pass at Old Trafford. Um, and my favourite thing that David Silver does, that thing where he starts with the ball in one spot and two or three defenders round him, and he runs in a circle, <laughs> taps the ball about three times at the end of his foot, and he's in about 50 yards of space. It is, it is some kind of optical illusion, I swear. <laughs> it's, like, it's like David Copperfield's got a series of mirrors around him or something <laughs> that makes defenders disappear the guy's unbelievable there is no amount of time i could dedicate on a podcast i could speak for a week and i would not get close to explaining how david silver makes me feel about football and i, I honestly i dread the day that he goes dread it
1: looking at the bigger picture he's you know he's not just a manchester city great he's a, a premier league great isn't he andy
3: he is absolutely i mean who doesn't love david silver he's a he's a brilliant player um but we say, always oh, we know when when he's he's injured and he's missing i mean you just notice he's not there and we saw it a couple of times in december with those those games city lost i mean just, the way he just makes the whole team tick and that, you know what he does not just in and around the box but deeper in the, the field as well it's just just fantastic he's he's been a wonderful player for city and he's been a wonderful player in the premier league you know one of the best premier league players of the well of the premier league era really and that he was like the, the 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 first of his kind as well, really, because when it comes to when you think of
1: the the Premier League great midfielders, you think of the Lampards, you think of the Gerrards, Vieiras, David Silva, um, possibly Fabregas, but yeah. really for for his size, his stature, and everything he could do with football, we, we'd never really seen him in the Premier League before, have
3: we? No, no. I mean, I suppose Fabregas is a is a reasonable comparison. He's more similar to mm. to Fabregas in nature than the others you mentioned, Gerrard and Lampard um yeah but as you say he's sort of a diminutive figure um tricky to tricky to stop you know when when he's on the ball Uh, surprisingly for for as good as he is and as good as we're saying he is and we all know he is it it is underrated in a way he's not he's not one of the players i mean gerard and lampard you know people are talking about them all the time we know they're they're great but you, you were reminded of that all the time whereas with david silver he just he just does his job very very effectively um and relatively goes, goes by unnoticed. But I mean, he's a quiet character by nature and I think that, that probably reflects that. But I think, well, I hope he's not, forgotten in, in those terms when, when the end of his career mm. comes because he, he does deserve to be remembered with the best because he, he has been one of the best even if his name doesn't necessarily trip off the the tongues of, of people outside of the the City bubble.
1: Well, he got that record against Wolves. How big of an achievement is it, Richard, to become City's most used Premier League player?
2: I think it's quite a big achievement. I think for... Um, I mean, it's, it's right, isn't it? Because he's probably the... The best player City have had in the Premier League era, so that they've, I think one of the, the signs of what a great era this has been for City has been that they've been able to keep hold of the big stars for the peak of their career. You think Aguero company, Joe Hart was one of those. Yeah, um, Yaya Toure was one. But standing above them all, uh, ironically, for somebody who does not stand above them in in any kind of physical <laughs> sense. Um, is David Silva, which reminds me, one of my, my favourite things, just quickly, that, that I've ever heard said about David Silva, was uh, Maka, formerly the Paris Angel on Twitter, RIP. He, um, he... He's not passed away. <laughs> His Twitter account <laughs>
1: is, is no longer yeah, uh, ju- just ceased to exist. Th-
2: thanks for clarifying. Um, he, I think, described David Silva as the most unlikely footballer. He's, he's small... He's one footed, he can't head, and he doesn't score and yet he's I mean, he's changed the scoring thing a little bit since, to be fair. Um but yet, yeah, in spite of all those things that should count against him, is he belongs in the conversation about best of a Premier League players. If you could make an argument as much as any can ever be proven that he's the best Premier League player of all time. And I don't think I don't think that's hyperbole. Um all you can ever do about that is state a case for somebody nobody will ever actually win that outright because it's too subjective. But he's in that conversation, absolutely.
3: Well, I was asked to carry out a poll last year for the for PA for the Press Association um, around the the ten year anniversary of the takeover um, you, to find out the, the best players of, of that era um, or the best players that had been signed in that in that era. Um, and David Silver won it hands down by by a landslide, really, from about a sample of about a thousand people. Um, he won it ahead of Aguero by considerable distance I think what is uh,
1: sort of paramount uh, when it comes to reflecting on on how good he's been for Manchester City is that how much of an impact he's had on Mancini, Pellegrini and Guardiola's title wins because alright, company's been around, Aguero's been around, Joe Hart has been around for two but he has had the biggest impact on them all, hasn't he?
2: Well he's been the fulcrum of all of those teams is the the absolute um the absolute focal point of them. Um even you know, even for as good as De Bruyne was last season and he was sort of the main man, David Silver for for everything that he had going on around him last season, you'd be hard put, I think, to say that had he had a full run at it You'd be hard put to say that De Bruyne would have been better than him. Um, it's just Silver isn't. I mean, you know, sort of Andy's already said it, but he just doesn't grab the uh, the headlines in the same way. But he's just he's magnificent to watch. I've never seen a player for me the, the bit that makes him so watchable and so lovable is how graceful he is on the ball. Like everything is done with a certain finesse. He doesn't do anything scruffy, even though he gets kicked a bits and he gives a little bit back. He's never scruffy. He just it's like watching somebody doing a bit of art on a fresh canvas every week. I just <laughs> I love him. I love him. I wish I could adopt him. Is he
1: since <laughs> greatest player do you think?
3: Well, I mean I, I don't know about greatest player, but he's he's certainly the, the greatest player of the, this past era, this past 10 years. Definitely I would agree. I agree with everyone who says that. I think yeah, he's he's been absolutely superb. Obviously, there's been other really good players in this time as well: yeah. Sergio Aguero, Yaya Torre, Vincent Kompany, Kevin De Bruyne. Now, probably belongs in that bracket. But I, I think Silva, for you know everything he does, that the way he, he dictates games, um, you know, the way he brings other players into the game and he, he sees things, you know, he picks passes that no one else can see. Mm. It, it's just it's just wonderful. It's it's great to see.
2: If I was a defender coming up against City and David Silva was playing, I honestly reckon I'd just throw a sickie. Like, why bother? Why bother turning up most weeks? The thing is, this? though,
1: for me, and this is what makes him, you know, it's certainly in the bracket of, and it's kind of going back to the point I was making before when hes he is the sort of, and he, he was, we see it a lot more now, but he was the first of his kind in the Premier League, is that the way he uses the ball mm. rather than he uses his body, um you think about Gerard the way he used to drive similar to lampard uh, Vieira very physical would drive with the ball David silver would pick up the ball and would let the ball do the work you know he, he he uses the ball he passes the ball he sees the play and he dictates tempo with the use of the football um and I know that sounds no ridiculous, no i guess he... but you know what i mean it, it, it's the, his passing that that no one else can, you know, live up to, if you like, in the in the Premier League era for me.
2: It is, well, again, I mean, not to just steal Andy's points and, and literally word for word, but he does see things that nobody else sees. You want, like, you sit in the stands, and I sit in the third tier, so you get you get a pretty good perspective of a game from the third tier. You can see the movements people are making. Most of the time, it's where frustration comes from in the stands, because you think you can see an easy pass, but at ground level for a player running up full tilt they don't necessarily see, it, and that's where wrong decisions come from sometimes. It's dead easy when you're a fan in the third tier. David Silver sees things that you can't see with a, ma- a map of the game in front of you. David Silver, he's writing it himself. He's create it, Just everything he does, he's, he's more than a step ahead of everybody else on a football pitch when he's at his best, and he's at his best most of the time. In the nine years, ten years, whatever, that he's been at City, whenever we've come on this show and um, we've spoken about him being a little bit out of form, or David Silver's not at his best, we're still probably talking about six or seven out of ten performances most weeks. He's never, ever really bad. You can count on one hand the number of games you can have where you think, Christ, City might have been better without him on the pitch that day, which is quite a testament. There, there aren't many players like that.
1: Uh, we could, like you said, talk about David Silver for a week. Can we? Um, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, we do like to keep quite tight on the podcast and we do have other things to talk about particularly uh, a couple of matches coming up in Huddersfield and Burton Albion Huddersfield have have just changed the manager you know are they going to get this sort of new manager boost or as I like to say old
3: manager out boost (laughs) uh, ahead of this match in this case I don't think so uh, because I think unlike what's happened at Manchester United with uh, Mourinho leaving, Solskjaer coming in. That, that has given everybody such a lift there, and we've seen it in the results. At Huddersfield, there just seems to be a great sadness, really, that, that David Wagner has, has gone. And understandably so, I mean, in the last three years, what what he's done at the, the club has been incredible. Really. He took him from 19th in the Championship to get into a completely unexpected promotion... To the Premier League and then kept them in the Premier League. I mean, Huddersfield fans are pinching themselves. They they can't really believe the journey they've been on these mm. last few years, and I think they're kind of sad that it's all over. Um, obviously, it's been looking like it's been going that way for for some time. They have, I mean, I mean, their the best result in the last few months has been a nil nil draw against Cardiff. <laughs> you know, that just shows how how bad it's been. Really, they lost eight on the, the trot before that that draw this weekend. Uh, but I, I suppose you, you ne, you never know. I mean, maybe, you know, a new voice in the, the dressing room, maybe that will, will fire them up. But, you know, they're coming up against City and it's gonna be a, a very tough game. I, I, can't see them taking any approach other than the, the one they took in the, this fixture last season when they, it was just damage limitation and yeah. they did. They did restrict City for for most of the game and it did take that fortunate late winner from Raheem Sterling to to make the difference. I I can't see them going for it. I think they'll just try and sit back and try and absorb everything.
1: Well, they are bottom of the Premier League. They were beaten 6-1 at the Etihad. Like Andy said, they were tough to break down last season. With everything that's going on there, could this be classed as a a banana skin,
2: Richard? Of course. It's a game that City should win. They'll be runaway favourites to win. You'll I'd be surprised if you found a home team this season that are at longer odds to win than than Huddersfield will be for this one because it just seems, it seems so unlikely. I mean, it um, was it two weeks ago Munier scored and he was the first striker that had scored for them all season. That is diabolical and is. I mean, I feel sorry for Huddersfield because it's a real shame after staying up last season, coming up against the odds. But the thing about the Premier League is it it finds out fairy tales and for as well as they did last season and they stayed up with that great 0-0 draw at Stamford Bridge and the keeper made a great save in that game. Actually they stayed up because they had the quality to do it. It wasn't all about the fairy tale and being driven on by this great story. They stayed up because they deserved it. Unfortunately in the Premier League you always get what you deserve and they deserve to be where they are. They're they're, they're simply not a Premier League quality team. Um, City going there as a team that wants to win the Premier League that are head and shoulders above almost any other team in it with one bloody irritating exception so far this season. Um this ought to be a game that as long as City show due respect, treat it like it's going to be a difficult game, actually do the basics right and it it should come pretty pretty easily in this one. But never say never because again who expects you to concede three goals at home to Crystal Palace? <laughs> you you can't you can't bank on there not being an Andros Townsend moment. So treat it like it's going to be a difficult game which City will, they won't be complacent, Pet won't allow it, um, and they should get the job done, and I would I would be extremely surprised if it's anything other than three points for City.
1: Liverpool play first, we've already mentioned they're at home to, to Crystal Palace on Saturday, assuming that they win. Um, is it a little bit demoralising to see that gap keep increasing and, and City having to, to go and claw it back, or do you think it's a bit of extra motivation to say, look, we've got to do this sort of thing?
3: Yeah, I think it's the the latter really. Yeah, um, I mean this, this is gonna this is gonna change as the the season goes on. It's not always gonna be Liverpool playing first. Some weeks City are gonna get the chance to go first and you know maybe cut that gap to to one point. And not that City need motivating. I think Pep does a very good job of uh, of, of motivating them. Um, but yeah, it gives them that little bit of incentive to to go out there and get the job done. Moving on and and City might be leading 9-0 on
1: aggregate but we have got the second leg of the League Cup semi-final to look ahead to. Now we're delighted to be joined by Josh Murray who's the Burton Albion writer for the newspaper The Burton Mail. Josh thanks for for joining us on the Blue Moon podcast. Um, How does Nigel Clough even prepare for this game on Wednesday?
8: Um, I suppose looking at it as, as a one off game, really. Um, you know, I mean, they they, they spoke in in the build up about knowing that the the challenge um, of you know playing Man City over well in one game alone, but over two legs. You know, I think he said it would have been the, the greatest upset of all time. So um, I think with what happened in the first leg, yeah, that they have to take take the second take the second leg as as a one off game and. and you know, it's a sell-out, it's a huge occasion for for the Burton Albion fans and I think as much as anything that's how they'll they'll view it really as, as an opportunity for, for these big players to, to come and to, to try and give the, the fans a good day and first things first, you know, probably grab a goal and, and try and better the scoreline for the first leg. What
1: was it like watching that first leg from the other side of the fence?
8: Um, I suppose first things first you sort of have to stand back a little bit and, and admire the football that, that Manchester City play. Um, you know, Nigel Clough said one of the big things he wanted his players to get from this tie was actually learning from from those players he said you know they could be better for the experience he says that he tells them all the time to go away and watch the top players but you know you you won't get anything better than than the playing against them and being up against them live and and similarly sitting and watching the the quality of the play um you know was 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 pretty outstanding and um so I suppose first things first, it was that, and then and then from a from a Burton perspective, it was uh, I suppose that that twenty minute period in the first half when they went one nil down, and then I thought they they actually played quite well, created you know really good chance for Marcus Harness, and you know there was a real intensity to them. But I think you always know that once City turn it on, um, as they did in little you know little spell before half time, and then most of the second half, um, you know it was it was just too much for Burton.
1: I don't think um, Burton Albion will be. You know, too uh, disheartened with us saying that the the tie's pretty much over. Um yeah. Andy, what how do you think Pep's gonna approach this game? How do you think he's gonna play? I mean he was surprisingly strong for the first leg, wasn't he, Andy?
3: Well there's an interesting development on this last night actually. Mm-hmm. Um City apparently very unhappy about the, the Checker Trade Checker Trade trophy quarter final against Sunderland being played on Tuesday night. Um the, this is the under twenty ones team. Because um, City were were hoping to play the the kids at Burton, but now with this game on Tuesday night, that kind of rules that out. So they may now have to play a stronger team than expected uh, at Burton. So there may be more first team regulars playing. So that that's going to come into the the thinking there. I, I was just wondering, um, Josh, what, what would Nigel Clough be, be thinking when he hears something like that?
8: I I, I was thinking this earlier actually when I when I, I saw sort of the the story up on on the website about that. I, I suppose it's a bit of both because I actually think that. From a Burton players' perspective, and certainly from the supporters, you know, as I say again, it's it's a sellout, it's going to be a massive occasion. You know they want to be seeing the the big Man City names. You know Man City can't name a weak team whoever they play, but they want to see the De Bruyne as the Aguero's, the Sterlings, you know the, those sorts of players if if they can. And I think the players actually want to come up against those those opposition. They want to really test themselves. Okay, it was it was difficult, but I, I you know speaking to players after the first leg, it wasn't a sense of a humiliation. I think it was just more and again an acceptance of the the quality they were coming up against. So. You know, I think personally that they would quite like to, to face a strong Man City team. Um, as for Nigel Clough, again, it's probably a bit of both. I think he wants his players to learn from those top players. Um, but also, you know, one thing he has said is, is Burton had already won the Cup in a way and in getting into the semi-finals. He doesn't want these two matches to actually, you know, impact the league form. So perhaps the prospect of an easier game might, from that perspective, be, be a nicer thing. So... You know, it will be interesting, as you say, to to see what sort of a team that they come up against on on Wednesday.
1: Obviously, with that Checker Trade Trophy match scheduled for the, the day before, Richard, um, you you think that when it comes to the academy players, some of the under twenty ones that are you know pushing on and knocking through the door that um, Pep would have liked to have played aren't, aren't going to feature. But on the other hand, that's not to say that there isn't a number of players in the squad that that need a run-out and also need to develop, like Phil Foden, for example?
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, just on the Checker trade trophy thing, um, first of all, I've just learnt that City are still in that. I genuinely have no idea because I'd do my best to avoid it because it is an absolute abomination that they enter a team into it. Um, honestly, I would just... If we have to choose between letting the young players experience granted one that's already in the bag, letting them experience a League Cup semi-final or playing in the Checker Trade Trophy, play the, play a weakened under-21 team in the Checker Trade Trophy. What use is it to try and win that? What use is it to just bin it off and play them in a semi-final? It's still with the intention of winning, you know, not to put a joke team out, but players that you want to take from the under-21s and play in the semi-final, do that, do that instead. Um... I've gone into a rant there and forgot exactly what your question was. Um, Phil Foden. Phil Foden. Others, yeah, he's good, other sort, he? of fringe,
1: <laughs> <laughs> other sort of fringe players in the squad that are, that need some game time.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it was a shame that Foden didn't start the first leg. But that said... City, Peck was right to say that he had De Bruyne and David Silva coming back, he needed to give them minutes. Um, it would have been good for Foden to say to be able to say that he'd started two games in succession, because obviously he started the, the Rotherham game of the weekend before, um, but he still played 120 minutes in a week um, and still scored two goals at the Etihad, so that's great for him. Um, so yeah, it would be it would be great to see him start this game. I thought there was a good chance for him being one of the almost one of the senior players in the team, get some of the kids out, play like Ottomendi and Gundawan and let the rest feel their way into it with a bit of experience around him. Um I guess that's not gonna be the case. Um we've got poor Brahim Diaz will be watching from the <laughs> burnabout, devastated that he's not playing in this one. Um but yeah, I mean to you know, in all seriousness, it is a great opportunity in a relatively pressure-free environment to to let Phil fold and go and play in a competitive game and have a a semi-final on his CV. He's already got some pretty good achievements on his CV, but it's another one that'll just breed that confidence. Let him get into the habit of winning in this city team with good players around him. If it's going to have to be a slightly stronger team than we wanted, then okay, let's use it as an opportunity to. Um, and again, this isn't taking anything for granted. But with the situation as it is, just use it as a chance to try and breed confidence. We took. We took a confidence-damaging couple of defeats in December. We got that back on track by beating Liverpool. We hammered Rotherham. We racked up a really big win against Burton that was beyond anything that I think anybody reasonably expected, even with City being significant favourites. Let's try and keep that going. Let's, If we can, try and get a few more goals and just let players play themselves into form and confidence. Josh,
1: what would you consider a good outcome for for Burton Albion in this match?
8: I I, I suppose I'd... Be able to answer that a little bit better at sort of six forty-five next week when <laughs> when the team sheets are named. To be honest, um, I, I suppose probably jumping on what you were just saying there, I think I think Burton will be will be looking at it in a similar light of 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 trying to build some momentum, trying to get some some positives for, from the game, um, and yeah, knowing that if again if they can, first things first, I think getting a getting a goal, you know, it, it's obvious to to say, but. You know, if Marcus Hans had put that one away in the first game, even at, you know nine one, it would have been something for the fans to cheer about. You know, a little, a little piece of, of history. Uh, again, getting to this stage was was really the, the success. So, I think first things first, it's that it's landed a bit more of a, of a blow. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think they just want to try and, and and have a bit more of the play. They're they're not going to boss possession for for long spells or, or anything like that. But in front of their home fans, you know, in a slightly you know, more difficult situation, perhaps for Man City. Um, they'll just want it to impress a little bit more. Um, and also, I suppose from from an individual's perspective, from each player, again, you know, that they're getting to a point in the season. Their league season has been very up and down. They want to try and stage a promotion push, but it's not really happened yet. You know, players again will be wanting to try and catch the eye and make sure that they can be sort of part of the team that, that, that goes on from from there in the league. Because as you say, you know, it's, I suppose in many ways, it's, it's a high profile friendly, in, in a sense, Um the, the, the game is done and dusted, mm. but but Burton's success was was getting there, and, and they'll try and land a few more blows this time around.
1: There was a, a big discussion after the first leg over whether it was disrespectful of City to to not slow down the scoring. What was your take on that from a Burton point of view?
8: Not at all. No, no, um, and certainly. I think Nigel Clough was, was of the this, the same attitude. I think beforehand he'd, he'd sort of acknowledged the fact that, that I suppose Pep Guardiola and, and why he is what he is as a manager is, is that sort of ruthlessness, that relentless pursuit of, of dominance, really. And, and that's what's got Man City to, to where they are. And... Um that's what we saw, isn't it? And and I don't think for a minute that Burton would have expected anything different. I don't think they would have come out after half time. Um, I remember last season in, in the, I think it was the third round of the Carabao Cup. They, they played Man United with three nil down at a half time at Old Trafford. And Mourinho actually came out afterwards and said, oh, you know, we'd, we'd said, take the foot off the gas or whatever, that the game was done, save yourself. And uh, Burton lost 4-1. I don't think there was ever a thought of that happening this time. I think they knew what was going to happen. And, you know, it, it was it was a, it was the respect that Man City a showed the competition, which I know Guardiola said, but b they showed that to Burton. There wasn't a sense of oh well, this is going to be a walkover, so we'll treat it as that. Or even when they're six 0 up, saying well that's done and dusted. Um, it's the, the professionalism that, that that's got them to where they are. And I think Burton Albion's play is as difficult as it will have been, I'm sure you know, as the seventh or the eighth, you know, when the fans were chanting for double figures, I think in in hindsight there was a, a genuine sense of you know they're showing us that that respect um and they'd much prefer that than you know the the I suppose almost patronizing nature if if they'd come out afterwards and said, "Oh well, we got to six and and we thought we'll just knock it about for the for the final half hour.
1: It's time to get our predictions, and with no correct predictions last week, we're still on £580 for the season. We're raising money for the Christie Specialist Cancer Hospital with our charity bet with William Hill. Now, looking at the Huddersfield match, first of all, Mooney has predicted a 2-0 away win for City, which is 4-1, so uh, £40 could be going into the pot. Andy, what have you gone for for Huddersfield? I'll say 4-0 to City. 4-0 4 nil away win is 7-1 to with William Hill, which means £70 could be going into the pot.
2: Um, and I'm going for them backing up the 3-0 against Wolves with a 3-0 against the Terriers. A different kind of four-legged beast to beat 3-0, Sam.
1: You've been working on that one for far <laughs> too long, Richard. Just uh, thought of it as
2: I was talking. I wish I hadn't bothered course, to be it. Of course
1: honestly. you did. Uh, that is to 24-5 with William Hill, which means £58 could be going into the pot. Looking at the second leg of the League Cup semi-final. Uh, Josh Murray from the Burton Mail. Give us your prediction. What's the score going to be? Are we going to see a Burton goal at the Pirelli?
8: I think so. I think Burton will, will land a few more blows this time and I'm, I'm backing them to, to get a goal. But um, as we've already discussed about probably the strength that, that Guardiola is going to put out there, I still think it'll be too much. So I'll go uh, I'll go 4-1 to Man City.
1: You mean you're not going with 10-0 Burton? <laughs>
8: I mean, I, 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 I don't know if you've got the odds on what that would be. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but no, I think uh, I, the joke during the rounds after the first leg was that the first goal at the Pirelli was going to be big. <laughs> um, but, but no, I, I think uh, I think it might just uh, just be, uh, be beyond than that.
1: 4-1 Manchester City away at Burton would uh, get £100 as it's 10-1 to 1 with William Hill, so fingers crossed for that one. Andy, you've gone for... I think 5-0 to City. 5-0, 12-1 to 1 with William Hill, which means £120 could be going into the pot. And Richard, you've gone for... Uh,
2: backing up the 3-0 win against Wolves and the 3-0 win against Huddersfield, uh, I'm going for a hat-trick of 3-0 wins. Against the... I... Don't do this to me. Brewers. You know was Richard. Yeah, you know I don't do research. Come on.
1: 13 to 2 with William Hill, which means £75 could be going into the pot. You've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more on Responsible Gambling, visit org. Josh Murray, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Blue Moon podcast, the Burton Albion writer for the newspaper, the Burton Mail. And uh, fingers crossed that they, uh, they do get the goal.
8: Cheers, guys. No worries.
1: Uh, It is time to move on now, and just before we do, if you listened to last week's show, you'll know we discussed European away tickets, and on that topic, we have had an email from Adam Perdue, who's the City Matters fan rep chair. Adam says while he felt it was a measure discussion that he thought we missed a couple of points that he'd like to bring up. He says the ticket point system has been amended and is a totally separate issue. On the topic of the official plane, he says it will only be for season card holders and the 200 seats involved is considerably less than the number of tickets bought but not used for Shakhtar away. Adam says that it's incorrect that Thomas Cook will benefit from the policy as the deal to fly the plane remains the same whether it's full or not. Get in touch with your thoughts, tweet us at Blue Moon Podcast, or you can email through the website blue Time for Howard Hawking. Now he is back and he's weighing in on respect gate and the small matter of empty seats.
7: Cherished things sadly lacking in modern society it seems, especially in the football arena. Give me just a little R-E-S-P-E-C-T and I'd be happy, as would City's fan base, no doubt. So let's find out what it means to me. Sorry about that. Respect is earned of course, organically, like United's success in the 1990s. The football authorities tried giving some to referees too, but that initiative soon died a death. After all, it seems it's a footballer's right to shout at referees for 90 minutes. And if you're Arsene Wenger, Neil Warnock or Sean Dyche, amongst others, the manager's right too. But let's run through how City could have been more respectful over the past fortnight, as a few journalists with their own hot takes have suggested respect has been lacking. Now they could of course have cut the grass for starters, not watered the pitch, not sang an edited version of one of Liverpool's songs that they themselves pitched from another team, but not allowed their keeper out of his area late on in a game already won, played a string of youth players in a cup semi-final to make it more competitive, but having not done so, at least had the decency to have scored a precise number of goals, and no more, namely six, so as not to disrespect the professional players they were up against. And all this to avoid becoming the first team in the history of football to be criticised for trying too hard. And they should have played Phil Foden in every match, irrelevant at the squad needs, especially more senior members who needed to build up match fitness. Sterling could have avoided doing one step-over in presence of Juan Matà. We could have avoided singing about going to Wembley when the first leg of the Carabao Cup semi-final had not even finished, the team ahead by a mere nine goals. Arrogance and disrespect there in one handy package. Of course, the more ones that shape social media discourse nowadays could have engaged just five brain cells or more, which excludes most talk-sport presenters, admittedly, and realised that City youngsters played in the Checker Trade Trophy at Spotland 24 hours before the Burton match. And with each victory, the tournament becomes more and more important. The chance of glory getting closer and closer for these younger, inexperienced players. Should we throw that competition just so some two-bit journalist is happy? Answers on a postcard, please. Anyway, we've got it all to come again, as the checker trade tie against Sunderland is a day before the second leg and the football authorities won't move it. Pep might have to play a strong side again. Or dig deep into our academy. Either way, he can't win. But back to respect. And what are the instances you may not know about? The past fortnight, after all, is just scratching the surface. What are the many times the nouveau-rich oil-soaked blue of disrespected rival clubs and fans in the past few years? You may need to sit down if not doing so already, as the next example may shock you. I'm surprised Duncan Castles hasn't mentioned it all previously. After all, there were few things more disrespectful than flaunting the club's wealth than getting a 100 points in the league. Why do not we ease off when we hit 90? But respect comes in many forms, which sadly brings me on to empty seats. Now, you really don't want to hear any more on that tedious topic. But there are a couple of side issues that do baffle me. They'll more fool me for trying to explain the rants of the cretins that inhabit Twitter and make it a no-go area even after my side has scored nine goals or he's passed the tricky wolf side, or even beating Liverpool. We all know the real reason that the jibes come, because our team is better than their team, so they need a new angle. The human rights foe outrage soon died down as Liverpool surged ahead in the league. Anyway, those side issues. The first one is the idea that a magic money tree appears for fans of successful clubs, just like the one Theresa May has when she's in trouble. You see, when fans and media criticise seats not being sold, who precisely are they criticising? Are they criticising the lifelong fans who have had to make sacrifices for blindingly obvious reason? The reason is this, I can go to fewer percentage of city games now compared to 10 years ago, not because I'm less of a fan, but because successful sides play a lot more games than unsuccessful ones and all the time my wage stays as low as ever, please buy my books. Now, I get round this by having debt, but plenty of people are actually sensible with their finances. As our football team has got better in the past decade, money has not suddenly appeared in my account to pay for 10 Wembley visits, 17 semi-final ties, Champions League ties galore, season DVDs and a lot more besides. So if you're not having a go at fans for not automatically aligning their wages to match City's rise, and you're not attacking people for not having enough money then who else are you blaming for the empty seats? Families who refuse to put their kids to bed after midnight when there's a midweek game? The only other possible answer is that you're criticising unknown people that don't exist. Unknown people for not becoming glory hunters and supporting City once they started winning stuff, thus filling in the gaps. What a truly bizarre and tedious argument. The second side issue is a peculiar British trait, or disease if you will, The bizarre reluctance to accept the thought that just maybe it is not scandalous for bigger grounds to have empty seats. Or any grounds for that matter. Do you think the Spanish banter boys are out on force on a weekly basis on Twitter mocking Barcelona and their average of 30,000 empty seats? Somehow I doubt it. They have better things to do, like grouting or cleaning out earwax. As I mentioned on Twitter this week, I once debated empty seats with the United fan more sus than most. His Mancunian goes to matches, after all. Though it's strange, he lost his passion in the past few years. I mentioned to him that United have empty seats at some matches too, as they have had many times since that conversation. Now he said that was different as they had a bigger ground. I pointed out that City had a bigger ground than Rochdale, so what was his point? He changed the subject, because there's always with these moronic arguments. There's no thought or logic between the claims. It's just part of the need to attack, attack, attack. And if you can't do it about the football, then other ways must be found. And so his argument was essentially thus, that there's a magic stadium capacity number, agreed as correct by United, Liverpool, Arsenal fans, etc., above which it's okay to have empty seats, but below which it is not acceptable. At least not if you're called Manchester City or are quite good at football. Conveniently, this magic figure that is shrouded in secrecy is greater than City's capacity and lower than United's. And that just about sums up how stupid most of these arguments are. This is why fans of the team that scored 18 more goals than any other team in Europe are faced with endless crap online even after a great result. Because the morons have taken over the internet and destroyed any chance of reasoned debate. Mickey Flanagan joked in a live show that idiots used to hide away in society. But now they're loud and proud about their own stupidity. And they spend most of their time typing on a keyboard that Manchester City have 11 fans before getting their mum to make their tea. Imagine being so utterly dense and unfunny to type that and think that you have been funny and burns a few City fans. So in the end it all comes back to respect. Whatever City do, whatever they achieve, they will never get any and I think most of us City fans are aware of this and accept it now. Because if we're not winning enough games, or winning too many games too easily. Or our fans are not appreciating the football by staying at home. Or we're financially doping football of course so what does respect mean to me well it has to be earned city's football has earned some that's undoubtable and for those that can't appreciate that it is their loss they know it deep down of course but respect works both ways it's about time sections of our media started earning some themselves Hi,
8: this is Gary Cook and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast.
0: This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Howard Hawking
1: back on the Blue Moon Podcast. Unfortunately, though, it is time for the final part of this week's episode of the show. It's all down to you, lovely lot. It is Ask the Panel. Get your questions in for us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Or you can email through the website, bluemoonpodcast.com. The first comes from Darren Watson on Twitter. Could standing be the answer to the flat atmosphere and the empty seats discussion? I'm not talking about safe standing, but standing like we used to have in the kipax.
2: Um, with all due respect to the question, that's a non-starter, isn't it? If, if standing's coming back, it's coming back as safe standing. It's not It's not possible that it comes back in its previous form for fairly, ob- again, with all due respect to the question, fairly obvious reason. Um, Hillsborough changed everything, and rightly so. It had to change. Um, you speak to people of that generation, no matter how much they love standing, people will tell you that it could still be scary, that you'd have crushes and surges, and that in many ways... Um, an accident, it was always an accident waiting to happen. Obviously, it happened on a um, on a horrific scale that I'm sure nobody would have predicted um, with lots of other factors uh, around that. But standing of that fashion is an absolute non-starter. Safe standing is a goer. Um, I think it's inevitable that that will come in. I think it's right that it should come in. I think we're a long way from, um, from the, the travesty of Hillsborough now that um, most people... We'll be able to talk about it uh, from a non-passionate position, um, and and those that those that are affected by it directly, obviously, will uh, uh, um, might have a different view. Um, but again, rightly and understandably so. Um, but safe standing, it, it's going to happen at some point. It's whether it takes five years, ten years, or whether it's next season. It's coming in and to answer, address the actual crux of the issue yes I do think it would be good for atmosphere Um, I'm sure we've all been to away games people tend to stand at away games feels like more of a day I mean it is a day out obviously but um, it groups together the people that want to be part of that atmosphere generally and it just it drives itself and so I do think if you have a safe standing section um at home game it will just bring together the people that want to be part of that because they want to be part of the atmosphere and at the very very least you will generate an authentic singing section rather than these ones that we try and create from time to time that are um they don't work this i truly believe would but um no it's standing as it was it's it's just it, it's not an option
1: Catherine has tweeted in originally this would have been pep guardiola's final season do you see him staying beyond 2021
3: uh, well, <clears throat> it's entirely up to him. I mean, we've seen him in the past um, reach a sort of natural end to the, the, the previous jobs he's had. At Barcelona, he decided he needed time out. Uh, Bayern Munich, he was there three years, and he decided it was time to move on. I think he's he's very committed to the the project at City. He, he does love the club. He's, he's going to be here for five seasons. Um, we just never know with him. I, I mean, obviously, he's he's a very intense character he you know you can see how how emotionally involved he gets in in all the games um you know there is going to come a time when he is going to want to release i mean he's spoken in the past as well about you know he's not going to be a football manager forever he doesn't see himself carrying on as long as long as the likes of you know sir x ferguson roy hodgson these people who are still going you know you know in in the 70s um so he you know he's not going to be he's not going to be around forever uh, but i, I think I, I could see him staying on you know a little bit longer than that certainly neil has tweeted could kevin de bruyne fill in as a deep midfielder when fernandinho
1: is out
2: um he's got some of the skills to do that job that sort of getting the ball out from deep the, the vision of what he can do on the ball i, I wouldn't doubt that he can do it to root him to that position, I mean, he already does get pretty deep, so I suppose that's where the question has come from. To anchor into that position would take so much away from his game um, that it'd be too much of a compromise, and so I don't think it'd be worth doing. I think we need an authentic replacement. And the other thing with that is the thing that really makes Fernandinho what it is, there's lots of top-level midfielders can play a good pass from deep or can get the ball moving again. What Fernandinho does better than I'd probably say better than anybody in the Premier League, but maybe, maybe N'Golo Kante might surpass him. He spots danger before it's there. He, he sees the play. Almost like we were talking before, we watched recall about David Silva, about how he see, sees things opening up for his team. He makes them happen. Fernandinho does the opposite. He shuts it down before he's developed. Um, and he's magnificent at it. Um, and he does it in a classy way. Um, I had to laugh when he got booked um, in the game the other day and somebody behind me shouted, oh, he's only booked him because it's Fernandinho. That's a pretty odd shout for a guy who gets away with about 10 fouls a game. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it, nobody. there's nobody in that team can do what Fernandinho does, and that is why we miss him so much when he's out. So yes, De Bruyne could do part of that job, but you'd compromise too much of his game without replacing the thing that Fernandinho really, really brings to the team uniquely. That um, Personally, I don't think it would be a compromise worth making.
1: Well, unfortunately, that is it for this week's show, but never fear, we will be back in seven days' time. If you can't wait that long and you're not a patron backer, then get yourself signed up. For $2 a month, not only will you be helping to fund the show and make sure we can keep producing top quality podcasts, but you'll also get extra bonuses each week, too. Every bonus show is is between 10 to 20 minutes long and on a random City topic and you'll get four or five of them for your money each month. This week's is all about managerial changes at City down the years. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Once again, thank you for listening to this week's episode and thank you very much to our two studio guests, Press Association's Andy Hampson. Thank you, thanks for having me. And City fan and blogger Richard Burns. Thank you very much. Have a great week.
0: Is the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast.
3: What are the roads like round Burton, Josh? Uh, I'll be driving down next week.
8: Should, yeah, should should be all right. The, the A38, which Burton's just off, can can have its moments, but um, I'm sure at the time time you'll be coming down, should be... Uh, should, are you coming down sort of a reasonable time Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, it yeah, yeah, should be, yeah. yeah. Should be absolutely fine. I'm interested actually to see if it's because Burton's record attendance was sort of six thousand seven hundred odd when they mm-hmm. played Derby in the Championship the other season, and, and this is a sellout. So I don't know whether that you know, sort of might be the the, the record uh, mm-hmm. record attendance on on Wednesday.